I'm Ben Horton. I'm Magnus Frimston, and you're listening to Undercurrents, the podcast from Chatham House. Hi, Ben. Hello, Agnes. How are you? I'm very well. I'm very well. How are you? I'm good, thank you. We are planning, plotting. Plotting. Not the planning plotting. continues. Plotting, plotting is kind of scheming. That yeah. seems pretty, uh, yeah. Yeah, uh, that's true. <laughs> us. I think that's <laughs> that's probably crediting us with a bit too much. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. That is true. But personally, I'm we very excited ahead. about International Women's Day coming up. International Women's Day. Whoop, whoop, March Absolutely. 8th. March 8th. Do you want to send in any flowers? Do. It's a big thing in Russia, that. Sending flowers on International Women's you Day? Give, you give women flowers. Really? The women in your life get flowers, yeah. What are your favourite type of flowers? Tulips. Or... I'm just going to write this down. <laughs> right. Tulips. What colour? <laughs> oh, we love a red tulip or parrot a, tulip. A red tulip? Yeah. A what tulip? Red tulip. Or a... Parrot tulip. A parrot tulip. Yeah, they look a bit like they're diseased, they but they're great. Do they copy you? No, they don't. <laughs> <laughs> that would be great. Um, <laughs> nice. Oh, God. Uh, um, yeah, is anything exciting happening at Chatham House at the moment? I um, mean, lots of things. I'm deeply excited because... I'm going to Ethiopia tomorrow. I mean, just swanning oh. off all the time. Ben is never here. Just <laughs> come back from skiing. It's been wicked. No, he's off to Colorado. No, no sorry. Yeah. Ethiopia. I can't Ethiopia. keep up. Oh, it's going to be good. It's going to be good. Yeah. Um, and how long are you there for? There for five days. Five days. I actually return when you listeners will be hearing this episode. Ooh. In time for the launch. Because I never miss an episode. Love it. But I'll, by the time you listen to this, I'll have, I'll have been and gone to Ethiopia. You can check out the photos on the Chatham House Instagram. Yes. In fact, do follow Chatham House on Instagram. Um, they we do, do cracking some, work. We do some good stuff, yeah. Yeah. Excellent um, content. We found some male vines. Oh. Miss Blast vine. from the past. I miss vine. It's mm. like, do you remember Periscope and that day we all watched a puddle in Newcastle? Uh, no. No, okay, cool. Probably you were too young, Ben. <laughs> it was like two years ago. What puddle? Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. Um, well, it's been a turbulent time in British politics, hasn't it? Has it has been a turbulent time in British politics. I do Splits. love, a, I do love a, you know, sort of dramatic resignation, though. I've and been there really have been it. many. There have. Yeah. There have <laughs> been many. And hopefully by the time this comes out, there would have been even more. Even more. Yeah. Would you have resigned? Would you join the Tiggers? Would I have resigned? I. We're not even saying which party you would have been in. I'm just asking if you. Would yeah, have no, I think it's interesting. I yeah, I don't think I have that inclination to just kind of tear stuff up and start again. Yeah. I think that's the bit that, especially when you don't necessarily have a sort of agreed policy platform or anything. Yeah, but I think but, people just felt I mean, so people, fed up. Yeah, I mean, some people. I, it's what's been interesting is the seeming range of different motivations for doing it that has now coalesced into some kind of group. Yeah. But actually they've all done it for their own reasons. Well, ish. I think a lot of people have been saying that Berg, Berger was the only one who resigned because of anti-Semitism. And actually I think that was a part of all of those Labour MPs' resignations. Mm. Anyway, what do I know? What do uh, you know? <laughs> nothing, <I> nothing. <laughs> who did you speak to this week, Ben? I spoke to David Lubin, uh, who is an economist at City mm-hmm. and uh, the the bank, I should Right, clarify, yeah. not the university. Mm-hmm. And we spoke about his new book called Dance of the Trillions, which is part of the Chatham House Insights series. And it's about capital flows in developing countries. Now, 
hold on. Yeah. That sounds techie. <laughs> what is that? Yeah. Well, it's basically about the idea that you've got all this money circulating around the global financial system and it's quite volatile. It's subject to change. People buy and sell whenever they want, blah, blah, blah. Um, but that the experience of that for countries who have relatively weak economies can be really damaging yeah. or can make have a massive impact on their the value of their currency or their ability to buy goods or trade import export etc um and david's written a really interesting sort of very accessible book as economic (laughs) as economics books go (laughs) no because it's difficult isn't it because Mm. i mean i have no idea about economics whatsoever but I, it was so interesting. So dry at the same time. Like, no, in the, it's really difficult sometimes <laughs> yeah, to get a grip absolutely. on it, even though it's really important and it impacts like so much of your everyday life. Yes. But the te- like the terminology and the tech, sort of technical background of it is can be really hard. Yeah. Okay, that's exciting. So, really, really interesting interview. Thanks, David. Um, uh, who did you speak to? I spoke to Anas Arameu Anas, who is a Ghanaian investigative journalist. Ben. He's famously masked, so no one's ever seen his face, so that he can remain anonymous. He has brought down a huge number of corrupt officials in Ghana and across Africa. So he did the judge scandal, where judges were taking bribes. <clears throat> um, I think sort of 34 or something judges were locked wow. up. And he unveiled that. He unveiled that. And also referee bribing across the African Football League. Um, witchcraft... Um, you know the like the sort of selling of albino um, body parts, all of that sort of stuff. The treatment of disabled children by witch doctors. Yeah. Fascinating stuff and really important. Really but obviously, he's hated by quite a lot of people, and it's not that safe a time to be a journalist in lots of places in the world. So we had a bit of a chat about that too. Fascinating. Well, let's have a listen. Let's have a listen. Okay, so now I'm joined by David Lubin. David is an associate fellow in the Global Economy and Finance Programme here at Chatham House and is head of Emerging Markets Economics at City. David's recent book is called Dance of the Trillions, Developing Countries and Global Finance, and it's part of Chatham House's Insights book series. David, thanks very much for joining us today. Thank you. Um, So maybe we could just begin um, with a little summary of, of what you were arguing in the book. Could you tell us something about that? The book is really about a kind of almost 50-year history of engagement between developing countries and international financial markets. And it's really a story about the modern era of globalization. Before the 1970s, in the 1950s and 1960s, if you were a developing country and you had a trade deficit to finance, you didn't issue bonds, you didn't borrow from commercial banks, you went to the World Bank or you got financing from rich country governments. Mm -hmm. The sort of modern relationship between developing countries and private capital, banks, bondholders, equity investors, this is a new thing. It only really dates from the late 1960s and early 1970s. The real engagement between developing countries and, and private international capital markets was kind of supercharged in the early 1970s by the oil crisis. At the end of 1973, Oil prices quadrupled for a story for reasons that I go into in the book, but needn't go into here. That caused a huge increase in the trade surpluses of oil exporting countries, particularly in the Gulf. 
and it caused enormous trade deficits in developing countries who were oil importers. Mm -hmm. And so there was this kind of, kind of obvious question, which is how do you get the dollars that are on the balance sheets of the oil exporting countries to finance the deficits of oil importing developing countries? And really there were kind of two, a choice to make between two options. In those days, people like Dennis Healy, who at the time was the British Chancellor of the Exchequer, Labour uh, Chancellor of the Exchequer, was arguing that governments should be involved. And the IMF, in, in other words, official institutions and official policymakers should be involved in creating a mechanism that helped to transfer these dollars uh, that were on the balance sheets of the oil exporting countries to the oil importing countries. It was the US Treasury that said no. The US Treasury wanted to make sure that the international banking system was at the heart of that refinancing mechanism. Mm -hmm. And that really, um, a phenomenon called petrodollar recycling. And it was that, that phenomenon of petrodollar recycling that kind of supercharged the relationship between developing countries and, and international private capital markets mm -hmm. because the banking system was kind of given the job of intermediating that flow of dollars from, from oil exporting countries to oil importing countries. And that was really what gave or created a boom in, in cross-border bank lending to developing countries in the 1970s that ended in a very, very serious crisis um, in the 1980s for Latin America in particular, which was triggered in 1982 by a decision by the Mexican government to uh, restructure its debt repayments. Okay. Um, what, was, what was the motivation behind... Um the U.S. Treasury's intervention there. Why did it say that this cannot be something that's led by the IMF or international organisations? Well, if you read um, Dennis Healy's diaries, which I, I quote in the book, the uh, he he quotes or he refers to William Simon, who was the U.S. Treasury Secretary at the time, who said that his objective, Simon's objective, was to allow uh, American banks to make enormous profits oh, out of lending okay. to the third world. Um, <laughs> But remember that, you know, in the 1970s, there was a, a whole change in the intellectual climate about whether governments or markets had the competence to allocate capital globally. Mm -hmm. In the Bretton Woods system, that was the, that was the international monetary system that was set up after the Second World War, the centerpiece of the Bretton Woods system was that governments should be the principal mechanism by which capital was allocated globally. Mm. Um, by the early 1970s, though, the Bretton Woods system was in a state of collapse. Um, global inflation had started to grow uh, very uncomfortably. And the competence of governments to allocate capital uh, came under question. Right. So it's kind of natural that the, the sort of center of gravity of decision making about how capital should be allocated globally moved from governments to markets because governments seem to be not very effective in doing mm, that job. Yes. And do you think, I mean, this may be a ridiculous question, but do you think that's been borne out by what has happened since? Do you think that, do you think that was ultimately the correct decision? <laughs> <laughs> Good question. I mean, for sure, the, what I describe in the book as a kind of capital account fundamentalism in a way, that's just a, a swanky way of referring to the idea that an opinion grew up that markets really, really were 
um, the right mechanism to allocate capital. I mean, for sure, in the 1980s and 1990s, the volatility of those capital flows, you know, the sudden outflows and sudden inflows of, of this capital was exceptionally painful for developing countries at various times. The 1980s and 1990s were two decades of intermittent financial crisis throughout the developing world. In the 1980s, it was essentially the Latin American debt crisis, um, which wreaked tremendous havoc to social and economic outcomes in, in the continent, and other countries were involved as well, the Philippines, for example. In the 1990s, you know, that decade was also peppered by intermittent financial crisis, the Mexican tequila crisis in 1994, um, the Asian crisis in 1997, the Russian crisis in 1998, Brazil's devaluation in 1999, mm. Turkey's crisis in 2001, and kind of, you know, uh, ending with the Argentine crisis uh, at the end of 2001. So you had these two decades between Mexico's rescheduling of its debts in August 1982 and the Argentine default of 2001. Those two crises kind of bookended this two-decade episode of, as I say, intermittent financial crisis. So you can say, in answer to your question, that no, <laughs> um, the you know the the decision to kind of let government or let the market decide how mm. capital should be allocated internationally came at, came at you know quite a high cost. On the other hand, this is you know these were decades in which, broadly speaking, income convergence of developing countries uh, achieved a great deal of progress. So you know this has been you know two decades or three decades now four decades in which developing countries overall have, have achieved income convergence towards developed countries. Mm -hmm. And so, in a way, it kind of makes sense to separate economic globalization, which has undoubtedly been a force for good in terms of alleviating poverty in the developing world and allowing developing countries to raise their income levels, mm. and financial globalization. You know, you can kind of, as a sort of shorthand, give it a, a tick... <laughs> to economic globalization <laughs> yeah. without necessarily giving such a, a tick to financial globalization. Mm -hmm. However, it's difficult to imagine the gains of economic globalization to have been achieved without some degree of financial globalization. The question really is how much financial globalization should, should there be? Or to put it another way, how committed should we be to allow the market an unfettered capacity to allocate international uh, allocate capital internationally or should we give governments developing country governments the kind of capacity to um, to kind of manage that volatility of international capital movements by imposing capital controls mm -hmm. now for decades the view in Washington you know the view of the IMF the the view of the the IM, uh, of the US Treasury was emphatically that that was a bad idea, um, to the point where in, in September 1997, at the height of the Asian crisis, you know, Thailand, Indonesia, Malaysia, um, Korea, you know, these, these countries were in the grip of a, a brutal financial crisis. The deputy managing director of the IMF, Stanley Fisher, brought to the IMF annual meetings in Hong Kong, September 1997, a proposal to change the IMF's constitution, which would have had the effect of, of effectively making it a requirement that all countries open their capital accounts and allow capital to come in and out uh, freely. In other words, even the, the commitment of, of the Washington institutions to this idea 
of capital account fundamentalism, as mm. I call it, um, was so intense that even in the face of this horrible crisis, they were still kind of, you know, happily going about trying to kind of sow this principle of free capital movements into the, the sort of constitution yeah. of the international monetary system. So was that just wholly ideological? Or is is it just a case that actually they were sort of maybe measuring the wrong thing or perhaps getting their sums wrong? Or was it just that at that point they had committed so much to this idea that it that it would have to be well, it, it was ideological it was. but it was also you know based on you know uh what you could quite conceivably describe as a rational view mm. um maybe that rational view was best summed up by larry summers he he said that international you know, free international capital movements is a bit like aircraft the fact that we have aircraft means that people can go places and you know economies are, are better off and households are better off and everybody's better off because mm. we have flight. Mm -hmm. But there are airplane crashes. The fact that there are airplane crashes doesn't mean that you want to uninvent the airplane. It means you want to kind of regulate, uh, you know, and have proper air traffic control and have properly trained pilots and properly engineered aircraft. Yeah. So if you take that analogy, the, the existence of financial crises doesn't mean that the system is wrong. It just means that the system should be regulated and monitored better. Mm. And in a way, this debate about whether countries should be free to use capital controls is just an extension of that debate about what, what regulation and what monitoring and what tools you should adopt to minimize the nasty economic consequences of very volatile capital movements across borders. Um, just for those of us who who maybe aren't aware, could you just describe how capital controls function? What do they do? <laughs> okay, I mean, they they create disincentives for capital to come in in the first place, and because the violence of the outflow is going to have something to do with the amount of the inflow that preceded it, the idea is that by dampening the inflow into a country of of potentially volatile or potentially easily reversible capital that that, you know, reduces a country's vulnerability to crisis. Two very normal examples of a capital control. One is taxes, you know, that, you know, if I want to sell dollars and buy Chilean pesos and invest those Chilean pesos into Chilean government bonds or the Chilean equity market, then I should pay a tax on entry right. into, in, into Chile's financial markets, for example. Another is a bit more technical, but um, something called a, an unremunerated reserve requirement. So, for example, if I want to bring $100 into Chile and turn those dollars into pesos and then buy a Chilean financial security, maybe I would have to take 30 of those dollars and put them in the central bank for a year, and they won't earn interest. That's why they're unremunerated. And that kind of reduces my return. So mm. it makes it that much less attractive for me to sell dollars and buy Chilean pesos and invest in Chilean securities. Now, you mentioned the volatility of international capital flows. I just wondered, could you just explain why it is that capital flows mm. of this nature are volatile? What makes them so? Yes. Yeah. Actually, probably the most important single factor mm -hmm. is, uh, over the last 40 years, has been changes in US monetary policy. We live in a dollar-dominated international monetary system. And as a result of that, when U.S. monetary conditions are very loose, in other words, let's say U.S. interest rates are very low, mm 
to keep it very simple. US interest rates are very low, therefore financial institutions operating in dollars aren't getting a return on their dollar exposure. And that gives them the incentive to go and put their money somewhere else mm. into higher yielding assets. Right. Those higher yielding assets are largely in the developed or partly in the developing world. So when US monetary policy is loose, you know, US interest rates are low, or the dollar is weak, that pushes capital towards emerging economies. And the you know, historically what we've seen in, in the early nineteen eighties, in nineteen ninety-four, uh, in two thousand and eighteen, uh, and various other points along the way, when US monetary conditions tighten i.e. when U.S. interest rates rise or when the dollar strengthens, that tends to suck capital back into the United States. Right. And okay. so it's, it's I mean, it's a, this is a, a simple answer to a complicated question, but it's essentially changes in, in U.S. monetary policy that, that end up being the most dominant source of that volatility. But the volatility exists because there are different types of capital inflows to a developing countries. You know, to a developing country, often... Economists, you know, establish a kind of hierarchy of, of flows. The safest form of capital inflow is foreign direct investment. When a, a company invests in a country by, by building a factory or by acquiring a company, those flows are not very volatile. But um, if, let's say, a hedge fund is buying um, a South African government bond or a Brazilian government bond, it can turn it can turn that around very quickly, yeah. and so you know some some flows are more volatile than than others. We got up to two thousand and one with this Argentine debt crisis. Mm. Was that a turning point? What then happened in the sort of first yes. uh, first decade of the twenty first century? It wasn't. It was a turning point for various reasons, but from the point of view of what it took to make the international financial system safer, or what it took to make developing countries feel safer within the international financial system, there was a, a kind of growing consensus in the late 1990s after the Asian crisis and into the early 2000s because of the Argentine crisis and the Turkish crisis that preceded that, that the international financial system wasn't going to be made safe for developing countries. You know, there was no, there wasn't going to be any sort of wholesale restructuring of the international financial system right. to, to kind of change things. And so a view emerged that actually what needed to happen, therefore, was that developing countries had to kind of protect themselves yeah. against this volatility of international capital movements. And, you know, in the book, I use the image of wrapping up warmly. You know, the idea is that the, 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 the volatility of international capital movements, you know, the sort of easy, easy reversibility of these capital flows creates cold weather and you need to kind of, you know, dress properly in cold weather. Now, the most important form that that wrapping up warmly took was the accumulation of foreign exchange reserves. The idea is that if a country has on the balance sheet of its central bank a stock of dollars mm. in, in reserve, yeah. mm -hmm. then when foreign investors rush for the exits, the central bank has the wherewithal to accommodate that demand, that sudden demand for dollars that that investors are presenting as they want to kind of leave the country. And the, the possession of that dollars, therefore, gives a country a buffer or, or a kind of self-insurance to protect itself against the volatility of international capital movements. 
quite a lot of commentary around the the economy, particularly in the West recently, has revolved around like responses to what we call the global financial crisis of two thousand eight. Was it a truly global financial crisis? What was the experience of developing countries during that, or、yeah. was it really something that kind of affected the U.S., Europe, and sort of more developed, established economies? I mean, of course, you know there are, you know, developing countries during late two thousand and eight and early two thousand and nine suffered a huge amount of financial volatility. And the, you know the world was in recession in two thousand and nine. Yeah. But actually, that two thousand and eight crisis was, as you suggest, much more significant for the developed world than it was for the developing world. And I think probably there's two simple explanations、um, for that. One is that this process of accumulating reserves that I just described by two thousand eight two thousand nine had been quite effective.、Mm. So developing countries had. Had you know stocks of reserves that allowed them to withstand the capital inflow that followed from the global、uh, the great financial crisis in late two thousand and eight, and so in a way that that process of self insurance that began in the late nineteen nineties had had enough time to be successful so that developing countries were relatively protected、um, from the shock. The second thing that helped developing countries survive、uh, that era. Was a set of policies introduced、um, in、uh, late two thousand eight, early two thousand nine by China. China responded to the Lehman crisis and its aftermath by introducing a very large economic stimulus to the Chinese economy. Right.、Um, that is probably best described. Maybe this is a bit too nerdy as a quasi fiscal stimulus. What I mean by that, a fiscal stimulus would have been an increase in government spending. Right. Okay. Quasi fiscal stimulus means that it was kind of government spending because the stimulus came from state-owned banks in China. So the state-owned banks lent money to local governments. The local governments used that money to finance infrastructure spending,、mm-hmm. um, and that supported. I mean, obviously, two thousand and nine was pretty disastrous for everybody, but.、Um, Uh, China didn't go into recession in two thousand and nine, and the fact that China was able to use the stimulus to support its own growth、um, was of enormous benefit to other developing countries. Ever since the early two thousands, really, and particularly since China's membership of the WTO in two thousand and one, China had emerged as a kind of, actually, a very benign force. A、benign economic force shaping the economic lives of of developing countries, and that's because China's economic model was specifically oriented towards investment spending and exports,、mm-hmm. and that nature of China's economic model meant that it had a very high demand for commodities and for intermediate goods that are kind of used in the production process to support its export、uh, its, its export industries. Now, where does China get commodities and intermediate goods from? It gets them from developing countries, and so the the nature of Chinese growth just turned out to be extremely friendly towards developing countries. And so it wasn't just this kind of wrapping up warmly that helped emerging economies protect themselves against、yeah. the shock of the the global finance of the Great Financial Crisis, but China also played an enormous part. 
Okay, interesting. We're coming towards the end, but I just wanted to bring it back to international institutions because at the start of this, we we talked about the 50s and 60s and how during the 70s, the role of the IMF and the World Bank shifted and the influence over capital flows was taken away and was given to the market. And yet the IMF still exists. Mm. Um, So I just wondered what, in, in the modern day, what is the role of, of institutions like the IMF and the World Bank and how do they relate to developing countries? Well, one important thing just to kind of pick up on, on uh, a thread in the discussion earlier is that the IMF has itself become much more kind of at ease with the idea that there are occasions when developing countries might appropriately use capital controls to minimize the volatility. Um, The IMF in 2012 published a very important paper called The Institutional View. And the institutional view was essentially a kind of acknowledgement that maybe capital controls might play a role um, in allowing developing countries manage this capital flows volatility. Broadly speaking, the IMF still plays an enormously important role in stabilizing Uh, in stabilizing the international monetary system. Um, Given the fact that capital flows behave in this volatile fashion, there are going to be times when developing countries lose reserves and because of a a sudden capital outflow, and they need liquidity from somewhere. Mm -hmm. They need dollars from somewhere. Yes. The IMF provides that function of, of, you know, the IMF is often referred to as an international lender of last resort. Mm-hmm. So when you know you you've run out of all your options to be able to borrow from international capital markets from anybody else, you can you can get dollars from the IMF. Now, and you know we've seen in in recently you know Argentina being the most recent large example um, of a country needing the IMF's resources. Pakistan is currently negotiating an IMF standby, um, and I'm sure there will be others. IMF lending is controversial because it comes with what's called conditionality. And conditionality is, it's a, it, for, it, it acts as collateral. So, you know, in a normal circumstance, if I lend you money to buy a house, your house is, is collateral. If you can't pay me back, I get the house. Yep. So lending often works on the basis of collateral. Yeah. When the IMF um, lends money, it needs some kind of assurance that it's going to get paid back. And conditionality provides that assurance and conditionality is refers to a set of policies that require a borrower from the IMF to manage its economic affairs in a way that's likely to maximize its ability to repay its debts. Mm-hmm. Just finally on this increased influence of China in recent times, mm. do you envisage a world where actually the dollar's significance to the global financial system decreases vis-a-vis a kind of rise of the renminbi? Or do you think we're still very much in a dollar world? The United States became the world's biggest economy in the 1850s. By the late 1940s, sterling still accounted for 87% of global foreign exchange reserves. Wow. Currency power gets transferred very slowly. <laughs> And remember, the, the, the transfer of currency power from, the, from Britain to the United States was a transfer of currency power from one Western liberal country to another mm-hmm. ally. Yes. Yeah. Um, so that's very important to remember that, that th- these things shift very, very slowly. And the recent evidence of 
any growth in the renminbi's international relevance is very scant. So I think that the, the dollar-denominatedness of the international monetary system is with us for quite some time. In the end, I'm afraid to say, you know, that to paraphrase uh, Mao Zedong, you know, Mao's famously quoted as saying that power grows through the barrel of a gun. I think it's also true in the end that currency power grows through the barrel of a gun. And so the renminbi's true international status will only really become apparent in a world that's very different from the one that we're in at the moment. There's another problem that the renminbi has, which is that given the way the international monetary system is currently constructed, to become a really important reserve currency, that currency also needs to be a fully convertible currency. Mm. And the Chinese authorities, I'm pretty sure, are absolutely set against making the renminbi fully convertible. They don't want anyone to be able to do anything with the renminbi in sure. the way that you can do anything with the dollar or anything with the euro. And that's not a, a, a law of nature. That's just a, a convention that exists within the international monetary system that we operate. So to answer your question, in, you know, one answer to your question is that in order for the renminbi to become this kind of globally important dollar-replacing uh, international currency, we would need to be in a different kind of international monetary system than the one that we're in at the moment. Okay. Uh, David Lubin, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you. David's book is The Dance of the Trillions, and uh, you should all give it a read. It's really fascinating stuff. So I am here with the famous Ghanaian investigative journalist Anas Arameo Anas and we're here to talk about your career and your work. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you very much. So to start, how did you first get into investigative journalism? I believe um, I started about 17, 18 years ago when I came out of journalism school. I think I'm a product of my society. Mm -hmm. So investigative journalism came to me as a natural consequence of what was happening in society, that I wanted to get the opportunity to shine light on issues within society. So as a normal reporter, you are put into your newsroom and then you realize, yeah, you've been reporting for three months and nothing has happened. Then you want to say, okay. So I decided then to read. I realized that people had been doing some normal reporting over the years and there was no impact. So I asked myself, how can I apply myself as that journalist whose, whose work will stand firm, stand the test of time, and also be able to kick out positive changes within the society. You've been responsible for unveiling some incredibly high-profile corruption scandals. What results of your work do you think you're, are you most proud of? It's a difficult question. Most of the work I do, the stakes are always high. Mm -hmm. And... Um, if you look at the judge's scandal, I think it's one story because of the magnitude. 
any journalist could say, yeah, I'm working. I've got four judges. Mm -hmm. So that's a story. It doesn't hit me. I, I will want to continue. That's why in the judges scandal, I got about 34 judges and then over 100 judicial staff. So death and magnitude always would be the central point mm -hmm. of my journalism. Now, I also am very clear in my mind that when you talk about the judiciary, you are talking about an arm of government. You see, judges are the gods in the guise of men. In our society, we all look up to them to enforce our civil rights. And so when you have a corruption within that institution, it hurts to the very marrow of our bones because it means that you can pervert justice. It means that you can you can sell. I mean, justice is for sale. Mm -hmm. And so I felt very personal when I was doing that story because I knew that this was that story that my grandma was going to read and say, yeah, this story indeed has affected us in the village. So I like the judge's scandal. And also I looked at it in a more holistic and pragmatic manner. And I keep saying that perhaps if we had a fair judicial system across the length and breadth of Africa, we will not be having the wars and the insecurity and turmoil, mm -hmm. farming and other poverty and other issues within the continent. And maybe if one judge had just stood out to be fair and honest, maybe the Hutus and the Tutsis in Rwanda wouldn't have gone into genocide. Mm. Have you seen changes in the judiciary since, since that story broke? Oh, huge changes, yeah. huge significant changes. And you would walk on the streets of Accra and people will, are happy. They don't know who you are, but they are happily boasting on the streets how their case has gone well mm -hmm. because of your expose. Can you imagine when a judge is convicting someone who he knows is not a murderer to life sentence? Yeah. Can you imagine the impact and the effect? Can you imagine when a judge has taken land that indigenously belongs to a group of people and given it to a rich man? So you see, these are easy avenues to start a war. Because yeah. people feel cheated, people feel not respected. They only will resort to guns. So I've seen the impact. Talk of um, some of the little stories. Uh, when I went undercover in the psychiatric hospital, I loved to see the change that was brought there. I also love and reminisce every day about when I went undercover as a patient, uh, as an inmate in, in Sawan prison. Mm. At, at, I'm very happy to see the minimal changes yeah. that happen within the prison service. I also would always remember every day when I went undercover as a woman in uh, the Osu children's home, which also sparked some remarkable 
changes as well as the bourgeoisie orphanage. Mm. You know, these are things that um, gives me some joy. Yeah. Um, when you look at my story about spirit children, where children born of deformity were fed with concoctions and killed, when I look at the impact that that story has had on society and the smiles that has, that story has been able to put on the faces of those innocent lives, it gives me a lot of courage and energy mm. to persevere. Um, I wanted to ask you a bit about the, the, the state of the media in Ghana at the moment. I mean, has the smartphone um, made it easier or, or harder for people to sort of find out the truth of what's going on, do you think? I think technology has lifted the game of journalism across Africa mm -hmm. uh, because it is not... People used to be shocked about the video just because it's a video, just because they can see images. Yeah. Today they are all able to make videos. So people challenge you to your content and not the fact that you have a video. So it's it's made it's upped the game for us, and it's also led to people thinking of more of getting important content yeah. that affects society positively. There have been some very high-profile murders of investigative journalists recently. Jamal Khashoggi, obviously the Saudi Arabian journalist in Turkey, and. Um, horrendously sadly your teammate Ahmed Hussein very recently has it has it got more dangerous to do what you do do you think has the climate changed or or are those just two horrible examples of something that's quite rare but has just happened recently do you think that's a difficult question but I think that see there are two forces in this world the good and the bad. Whereas, you see, when we we set out to work, what we don't know is that the evil people in society sit at meetings and plot what they, they want to do. And so when we get such opportunities to shine light, let's not take things for granted. Mm -hmm. Let us take our work very serious. Let us be in that mode of knowing that any time we give opportunity to evil, they were going to come after us. Now, why wouldn't they? I mean, if you do that kind of journalism, that hits the nerve center of the corrupts and criminals in society, who definitely know that at the end of that work, they have no life again. Mm -hmm. They will come after you. And it doesn't matter whether it is in Africa or it's in the U.S. or it's in the U.K., everybody faces dangers. It is the level of security that we put in place and the level of being one step ahead or three steps ahead every day that has kept us alive till today. So um, Khashoggi, um, Ahmed, Delejiwa, Nobezongo examples would always be there. We would always have those challenges in the world. Question is, should that dampen our spirits? 
should it let us give up the fight? I think that the answer is obvious, it's clear, it's a no. See, the world has been full of struggles. We didn't just get here. <laughs> Our forefathers, be it in America, be it wherever, fought for us to get here. When you look at American history, you see Nellie Bly, who was an undercover reporter, was in a psychiatric hospital. It's not new. Mm. Now, posterity will not forgive us if we decide that we are just going to fold our arms at our backs and allow crime to happen in society. Don't get me wrong. Um, there will be problems. People will pay for their lives. Mm. But I think we are doing it for the next generation, just as our forefathers did it for us and made it possible for all of us to be seated today in this studio. Yeah. Well, brilliant. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak to us today. Thank you Thank very you. much. You can read uh, my interview with Anas in The World Today online at theworldtoday.org. Free to access now? Free to access now. Lovely. Until, only until the end of March, so oh. get your skates on. Get reading. I was worried about the audio um, and whether or not you could hear his mask because it's beaded curtain. Yeah, but actually, no. actually didn't get involved. Although that must have been, as, as understandable as I can see, it must have been quite creepy to be here in the media studio dungeon with a masked man. In the dark. In a padded room. Yeah, but <laughs> in the dark, just, just me and him. Yes. Yeah, I will Super put a photo nice. up as Super well. Super nice. Absolutely yes. lovely, incredibly like intelligent, brave man. But yeah, it was a bit sinister. A bit creepy. Okay, well, before we go, we just have to say thanks to a few people. Oh, shout-outs. We finally got to the point where we have shout-outs to do on the podcast. <laughs> yes, Agnes. <laughs> We've made it. We've yes, made it. Yes, Agnes. Um, so this, is in, this has been triggered, actually, in response to uh, a sighting of me in Leicester <laughs> at an event, which I didn't attend and for which I was not in the country for. Uh, <laughs> or so you said. Or so I said. Um, but we we got some intel from a from friend of the pod, Thomas Rains, who is the head of the Europe program. Yeah. Uh, that he was approached at a roundtable in Leicester and asked, "Are you the guy from the Chatham House podcast?" Yeah. And he didn't lie. He didn't lie. He didn't claim to be. He you. could have claimed, although why would he want to? But anyway, <laughs> thanks very much to Will Souter. Yeah, we said we would give you a shout out. He's, he Tom asked, asked for a shout out. He got we asking you shall receive. So thanks for listening, Will. Uh, if you've ever got any ideas about what we should be talking about, get in touch, yeah. tweet us or something. But that made us think also about the lovely messages we've had over the past few months yeah. since we've been doing this podcast from from listeners. So just wanted to shout out a few more thanks. Recently I had some really positive comments from Chris Quigley. Thanks very much for tweeting us. And thank you for listening. And thanks for listening. Uh, Bernard Arite, thanks as well. Yeah, always Loyal such member. A, always so positive. Thank yeah, you. Love it. It means a lot actually. Exactly. And um Vanessa Schneider, who tweeted after our Christmas special. One of my favourite episodes to date, although I was trounced in the quiz. But thanks for listening, Vanessa. And uh, thanks very much to Ella Thorpe Beeston, who is in no no way associated with me, is in no way my girlfriend, <laughs> and definitely listens every week because she wants to. Yeah, and not because she's forced to. <laughs> and not just for our stats. But that's all from us. Uh, you'll be we'll be back in time for International Women's Day yep, as mentioned earlier with a special episode for you uh, in the meantime you can follow Chatham House on Twitter at Chatham House uh, 
And uh, thanks for listening. Yeah. Tell your friends. We'll see you in a week.